Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Welcome back to um, part two of literature with Dr. Laura I and Robin Johnston. And we are going to dive a little bit deeper into narration on this episode. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about ways to assess narration, objections to narration, um, and also then get get deeply into the types of books that ought to be read to children, uh, books for them to read on their own, books that parents read out loud, um, transitioning to middle school and then high school. Um, and you'll get to hear a lot of uh, our favorite books. We're going to have fun on this one. Okay. So let's dive into ways to assess narration. We know this is like a million dollar question that parent, teachers ask. I know that after the last episode, a lot of teachers were asking, how do I assess narration? So let's dive into that. And I know Robin, you've done a great job at creating rubrics <laughs> for, uh -huh. for yes. classical education. So let's start with you on um, ideas for assessing narration. Okay. Um, well, all assessment is by nature, either objective or subjective. Um, objective narration is when there is only one right answer. A question is either true or false. It can't usually be both. Uh, or it's the correct multiple choice D or C or what have you. Um, or it's or, or your narration, I'm sorry, your uh, assessment is subjective, which would be things like essay questions or short answer questions, um, projects, uh, performances, that sort of thing, in which the teacher's subjective opinion of mastery is required. Okay, so um, I am not a huge fan of using objective assessment with literature most of the time. Mm -hmm. There is a time and a place for objective assessment, but it's not usually with literature. And it, it harkens back to what Laura said earlier about how one work can speak to three or four different people in three or four different ways. And if I only allow one right answer to what is the climax of the story of the secret garden and someone else had a different opinion that is entirely justifiable and that they could defend, then I've counted them wrong when I shouldn't have. So I always preferred with literature to use more subjective forms of evaluation. And I found that rubrics were a great way to do that because they are pretty much entirely subjective based on what you insert as your uh, criterion, but they look objective, mm -hmm. um, especially to people who don't really understand subjective assessment very well. It looks like the child uh, is being graded in a, in a very uniform way, and, and to some extent they are, but it really is a very subjective thing. So on a rubric for, let's say, the secret garden, uh, I might have a child give a narration, and my requirements would be that they um, hit most of the main points of the events in this section of the book and that they used some of the author's own words and some of their own words and that they kept things in order and that there were details shared. Mm -hmm. okay, so there's five points of assessment. They could be worth 10 or 20 points apiece. And I would decide, okay, they did a really good job on this one. That's a 20. They did a pretty good job on this one. I'll give them a 16 or a 17. And it adds up to 100, and there's your daily grade. Um, and then you just file that little rubric away. And of course, you can rewrite rubrics in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. If you keep a blank template on your computer, you can just toss your questions in there and print it out, and off you go. Mm -hmm. So for teachers in classrooms especially who are required to have grades that are defendable, rubrics are a great way to go. The, right. other, uh, the other really big recommendation that I would make for classroom teachers is a participation record. Um, I used a seating chart for my classroom and I simply had the children's initials or their numbers because children are often numbered in schools. And as we were having a discussion, I would make a little check mark next to their desk on my little chart 
okay, that was a good comment. And if it was a really good comment, I'd put a star. Um, or if they were having, you know, difficulty interacting well, I might put a little frowny face or, you know, might, might write a little note. Joey was so excited about this that he kept interrupting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, I would give a subjective grade to their participation for that day. And I would save that chart in a folder in case a parent ever had a question about why little Joey got an 85 that day. And I could go back and say, well, he, he just kept interrupting everybody. And in fact, every comment he made was an interruption mm-hmm. and he was warned four times. So he lost, you know, 16 points and he gets an 84. So, um, and then at the end of every quarter, you can just throw all those away. Um, but those are both very easy ways to take a grade off an iteration or a discussion of a, a piece of literature that don't require a lot of preparation on the part of the teacher and they give valuable and useful feedback to the child. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the beauty of this, the subjective evaluation is that it's so freeing for the teacher too. You oh, yeah. really, you can adjust it to the child and maybe for one child, it is quite an accomplishment to say three coherent connected sentences, whereas another one might just be bubbling over with, with <laughs> the sentences. But I think it's really important that we, that we evaluate them where they are and that we recognize yes. the growth that they have. I, I yes. think that's, um, that, that reminds me of the story that you told earlier, Adrian, about that on the last episode about that little boy um, who made a tremendous, tremendous growth through narration. And I think that that should be, I mean, that that's an yes. A right there, even though his narrations maybe weren't perfect, right. but the change. Right. That's a good point. I also like the idea of perhaps even customizing the rubrics for each student. And you can, there's no reason not to. And allowing, hey, I know that this student uh, really struggles with vocabulary using the words of the author. And you can sit the child down and say, hey, your narrations are, you do a a pretty good job telling it in sequence, but you're struggling with... um, with not using some of the vocabulary. So can we make that your goal for this semester that when you narrate, you're gonna to try to at least include one or two words from the, the story, you know, or whatever. I mean, and I think that, or speaking up, even even using vocal, your voice correctly in your narrating can be part of, part of the rubric. If you have a child who just narrates so quietly that they're mumbling, you know, that it makes it difficult for a whole classroom to do group narrating if they can't yes. hear what another student is saying. And so mumbling, yes. and, and that's another really important part, learning learning good speaking habits mm-hmm. is part of narrating. Yes. And it's, it's perfectly fine to customize for each child because what you're aiming for is for each child to improve on their own baseline. Correct. Not for Susie to get better than Jane, but for Jane and Susie to both get better than where right. they were. Yeah, and there's a fine line here between the, the teacher using this as a checklist, you know, and and the teacher using it, using the assessment as a tool to help the student grow as a person, mm-hmm. you know, so yes. I, I like that. And let's, a, a third idea that I'd like to throw out there is to have small groups of students uh, act out their narration. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would probably be chaos in a second grade classroom, but <laughs> in a middle school class, classroom or a high school classroom, I've had students do this and it was a lot of fun uh, to have, you know, six or seven eighth graders acting out uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography or acting out, uh, you know, something from the Federalist Papers. Or It's fantastic to see what they come up with and they remember it for years afterwards. It's and true. this does not require that they memorize lines, right? This is just them basically retelling through. Yes, it's not scripted. Words, right? That's right. It's not scripted. They they just come forward and you take this role and you take this role. Go. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it is another oh, another fun another fun activity that I've seen done at schools. Um, one teacher in particular that loved it and her kids loved it was when they would narrate. They were reading through. Um, the Iliad or the, I think it was the Odyssey. They were reading through the Odyssey. And so they would read it aloud in class in turns. And then as they were narrating it, she would stand at the board and draw a picture of what they were narrating. Yes. And they loved it. And she said, after about a week or two of school, 
they were raising their hands saying, teacher, can I come up and draw when, mm. you know? And so when I, when I came to observe the classroom, the kids were just so into this and they were getting up and drawing the narrations and it was beautiful and they, it made it exciting for them. And I think so also for the teacher to sort of find a way that uh, narration can be delightful for her or him helps narration become a delightful experience for the students. For her, sketching stick figures up on the whiteboard <laughs> was a delightful experience. For another teacher, it could be something completely different. Um, but yes. bringing some sort of smile play. and joy to the some play. experience. Yeah. We bring yeah. play into the classroom. That's how children naturally learn, is by playing. <laughs> so why do we not allow play in the classroom? Right. Yep. And, and I think it, we should encourage some play, reasonable, you know, play. I agree. I agree. All right. So now we're going to talk about objections to narration. We've heard many different objections, and we'll we'll tackle a few that we know are popular out there on the internet, uh, and that we've had to deal with with teachers that we've worked with with piloting these programs. So, um, you want to list off some of them, Laura? <laughs> And then we'll tackle them. Yeah, I mean, maybe the most basic one is just that children don't like it or that they find it too difficult, that they won't speak, that they don't know what to say. Um, and I think that is easy to remedy by just going back to some of the things that we were talking about last time, helping them visualize the scene, also really not overdoing it at first, yes. maybe not expecting them to retell an entire chapter, but just two pages, just maybe a couple of paragraphs. So start small. And also, you don't need to expect them to be able to retell everything and every little detail right away. This might be a little bit easier to do in a school setting where you can call on different people to contribute different ideas for homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. When they're just one-on-one, -on -one, it might feel like my child has to do it all. In that case, I would say just make it more of a conversation. The child starts out with something or that maybe the, the parent starts out with a few ideas. And then what, what do you recall? What happened next? And then they say a few things and then you can insert your ideas again. So it, it's not necessary for one child to be able to retell an entire chapter perfectly right away. I, I agree. Thank you for bringing Amen. that up. That, that is a huge question in the homeschool community. Uh, it was a, something I struggled with as a homeschool mom. It was a struggle for me. And Charlotte Mason, when she came up with this, um, well, kind of re rediscovered this method that Quintilian was a huge fan and, of and, and used in his teaching. Um, but when she was developing narration as an art for her students, she was working with schools. I mean, she had like over 200 schools throughout England and they were classrooms with multiple students and multiple grades of students, you know, different levels of students. And so narration, I think, is easier to do when you have a classroom of children because they want to contribute. Oh, I remember something that happened next. Oh, I remember something. Oh, I remember a detail. And they all mm -hmm. the hands are shooting up and they all want to add to it. And that's why it was funny when I started to train teachers at schools and watch this happen. I was I finally understood Charlotte Mason's words when she said that children delight in narrating because mm -hmm. my children at home did not <laughs> because I, I didn't. I didn't realize how you could do it in this this way. And I, I agree, Laura, that asking questions and, and even for classroom teachers that are new to this, asking some questions during the narration is good. What happened next? Oh, tell me more details about that. It's fine to stop a narration if the kids are kind of dry with it and they're not really going anywhere with it. A lot of these kids are only used to summarizing. If this is new mm -hmm. to them, they're just used to giving a summary. And so being able to say, well, tell me more details or if, if one, well, I had an, a little boy, I was, he was narrating Courage of Sarah Noble a few weeks ago and they were talking about the dad in the story. It was kind of the beginning of the book. And he said, well, he was a country man. And then he just kind of stopped and didn't say anymore. I said, well, tell me more about him being a country man. How do you know he was a country man? Mm -hmm. And when I said that he was able to then narrate details that the story had told about the dad that defined what a countryman was, yeah, right? That's a beautiful example. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So it's totally fine to 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 insert those questions 
and you're not destroying the narration or ruining, you know, their thought process. You're giving them a hand in helping them express what he already knew. He was a countryman. He just didn't know how to express the details of what he had remembered from the story until I asked him. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would say too, another way to take some of the stress off, especially with homeschool is to not grade narration at all for the first four, five, six months of doing it at all, at all. Agreed. We're just going to talk about books. We're just going to talk together about books. And in the classroom, you can do the same. We're going to learn about how to talk about books. I agree. And just don't even worry about grading it yet. Yes, especially since, I mean, like we said last time, the main purpose of narration is to assimilate what you read, to synthesize what you read. It's not an evaluation at first. Right. You can use it as such at some point and occasionally, but the main purpose is for the child to synthesize, yes. to, to assimilate what they have read. And the beautiful story, them. the beautiful yes. truths of the story, yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. And just because something is too hard doesn't mean <laughs> that we ought to stop doing it. No, we just should be changing the way we do it, maybe. I think that's a really important point, too. Um, Very my important. kids all play the piano, and there have been many tears, and there are many moments of where they really hated that. But we didn't drop piano, and we also didn't stop that particular piece that was difficult. We just changed the way we practice. Maybe they're not ready for playing at hands together yet, or maybe... They're not ready for oh, yes. an entire line hands together. Or maybe. slow the beat down or, or something. Exactly, exactly. You adjust the way you approach it, but you don't have to stop yeah. completely. Mm-hmm. That's one a great of, example. As a pianist myself, that's a great example. Yeah. One uh, of the, one of the um, other objections about something being too hard, uh, we ought to stop, pause, step back, and think, are we hindering the child in their narration because perhaps we're not reading enough text or we're reading too much text mm-hmm. or we're interrupting the reading of a text with mm. our little, oh, let me define this word while I'm reading. And then the child loses their train of thought. There are those things yes. to consider that yes. could make it too hard for a child. And another mm. thing is what type of text is this? So Yes, it needs to be beautiful. Maybe we Literary. talk a little bit about that. What what a living book is. What what does this mean? A book that's uh, be, has beautiful language. What 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 do we think um, would be the criteria for books that we narrate? I think this should first of all be age appropriate. Um, so there are many beautiful books for eighth graders that I absolutely do not think a fourth grader should read. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor try to narrate. And the same with, you know, books for 12th graders that are not appropriate for eighth graders. If you're reading a child something that is too difficult for them, they're not going to be able to narrate it because they don't understand what you're saying. Um, I remember once being challenged to narrate a philosophy text. And I, I was a grown woman at the time with a college degree, and I, I still was like, and something about being and phenomenology. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand the text, so of course I could not narrate it. Mm-hmm. So I would say that that's, that's one thing to always consider. But in terms of it being a living book or a, a living text, um, you know, different people have different definitions of what that means. Um, for me, I think it, it has to do with the, the language is beautifully done, it's beautifully written. It may not be, you know, super poetic, but a, a great example is uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia. The, the sentences are beautifully constructed and the scenes are beautifully created. And a lot of the story is hidden in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis was a master at showing you it rather than telling you what was happening. Right. Um, so it produces it, images, right? It produces yes. beautiful mental images. Produces beautiful images. Uh, and it's, it's, it shows the children characters that they can uh, connect to. And, mm-hmm. and they can understand what they're going through. So if you compare something like uh, C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, to SpongeBob SquarePants or, or something of that nature, where it's just, uh, he goes over here and he bonks him on the head, and then he goes over here and he drops him in the pool, and then he, I mean, it's just, it, I'm sorry, but it's just stupid. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude. It's twaddle. It's, it's twaddle, and, it, and, and so it's hard to narrate because, 
it's just one thing after another that happens and there's no real development of a character. There's nothing beautiful or interesting really happening. Mm -hmm. So I think that a living text has to have those elements of characters that are growing and words that are structured beautifully. And it's not just one stupid prank after another happening in mm. the book. That's good. I hear. And dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Dialogue. And dialogue. Children need a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how adults interact dialogue so let's go on to um the idea uh one of the other objections of narration being it's a tool it's just a tool and uh i think this is important to discuss because the seven liberal arts are arts they're not tools and narration is part of the art of rhetoric um it is one of the parts of the progymnismata, which is the, I, I think the 12 steps of writing that we can read about in Quintilian's works. And because it's not a tool, but it's an art, which means it's a skill to learn, this makes it very different. It's not just a hammer to set aside, you know, when we don't need it. It's something that is a skill like piano playing, like you were saying, mm -hmm. learning, learning the art of playing the piano. It helps us to develop, like Robin said in the last episode, a lot of um, faculties. Our mind grows. So narration causes a growth, a very significant growth to happen. Uh, metacognition, the art of thinking about thinking, is happening when children are narrating. So this is a, a lot different than a tool. And I think that because it can be viewed as a tool, it can be viewed as something that we don't necessarily need. I don't need that tool. I can just go get a different tool. Mm -hmm. And I think that because it is an art, it's part of us naturally. Like we are naturally, humans are naturally musical. We are naturally story-based people. Mm -hmm. um, and that the art of telling a story and the art of narrating a story is, is something that is humane. Um, right. And it, it's it's little children do it naturally, right? Uh, and and so it, it's it's just part of being a human being. We naturally tell each other about the stories of our lives, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you you right. get with your best friend for coffee, and what do you do? You sit and talk about what your life has been like. You narrate your life to each other, and so I don't think it's something that you can set aside. I, I really don't personally. I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to get into the types of books that ought to be read to children. We talked a little bit about living books, but let's get into some details here about uh, what types of books ought to be read aloud to children, uh, pre-K through fifth grade, and then maybe transition to middle school, what types of books to read aloud as a family, um, helping middle school students fall in love with good literature, and then from there shifting into high school, um, what high school um, books would be good to help a student perhaps who really hates reading. They've had a really poor foundation. Um, where, where should a parent or a teacher start to help those students? So let's start off with the pre-K five. And um, Laura, would you like to start giving us some ideas there? Yes. Um, so I think for the early years, the kind of books uh, to choose you really need to be books that emphasize beauty, where the images are beautiful. Of course, you want the language to be beautiful as well. But really, I think the illustrations are crucial because that's what the children will be looking at. That's what they will be pouring over even after you've stopped reading. They will go back to the books and look at the illustrations. So um, choosing books that are simply beautiful to look at is important. Um, for the very early years, I think the Eric Hall books are lovely. They have, they're so colorful and they have beautiful, simple images. Um, Jan Brett, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Yes. Jan Brett, is that right? Yeah. I think her um, illustrations are just amazing. She yeah. adds so much detail, and usually they have kind of a margin around the yeah. page that has other elements, maybe something else that's going on in the story at a different location or that's coming next. Those are so rich. So sitting down and reading that, the child has so mm -hmm. much to, to see and to think about. So I remember I when my daughter, Elizabeth, was five and she she was in kindergarten at a public school at the time and she came home with a Jan Brett book and just loved it 
and told me it was her favorite book. So we went to the library and found a whole bunch more Jambrett mm-hmm. books. And she just loved Jambrett. She was one of her favorite picture books. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think that the little marginal illustrations around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tasha Tudor's books are kind of like that too. Mm-hmm. So yes. Margin, yes. Marginal yeah. illustrations. I would, uh, I'd like to put a plug in for Jerry Pinkney's books. Uh, Jerry Pinkney especially has done a lot of the uh, fables. Uh, like um, the Lion and the Mouse, the yes, Tortoise yes, and the yes. Hare, um, and some of the more classic fairy tales, like The Little Mermaid, and and his illustrations are stunning. And in some cases, there yes. are no words. It's mm-hmm. just beautiful illustrations that tell the story. And so the child can tell you the story while looking at the beautiful pictures, right. which is narration right there. Yes, um, he has also illustrated uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi. Um, yes, and that's beautiful. a wonderful, wonderful book. I think that's wonderful. the book that when my when my son was maybe three or four, he was obsessed with that story. And I think it was <laughs> partly because of those illustrations. They are so wonderful. In fact, um, he always wanted to act out that story. And at that oh, time, that's my that's second son like- was born. Um, he might not like that I'm telling the story, but since he was a baby, he couldn't really acted out with us so he was Chuchundra the muskrat so to this day his nickname is Chooch because he was Chuchundra the muskrat in that story that's so cute that's so cute is there a particular illustration illustrator for that book the Jerry Pinkney the one that's Jerry Pinkney okay yeah Yeah, sadly he passed away last fall but his books are amazing his books are amazing I'll I'll look at anything by Jerry Pinkney So that's the kind of, of beautiful illustration. Yes. Well, and I think I would also, um, I would like to put a plug in here for Astrid Lindgren. I think it is such uh, a shame that in the U.S. she seems to be mostly just known for the Pippi Longstocking books. And then people always tend to think that it's just a book about a naughty girl, which it is not. And she's written so much more. So she's written so many beautiful books about just sweet characters and a wide range of different some very realistic some more imaginative um fantastical so um there are a number of her books that i think are wonderful for the early years like the children of noisy village are really oh yes that's a great one and um, i loved astrid lingren growing up my son mio or mio my son i don't know my son yes that is also a lovely one for for the early years a very beautiful good and evil story about a little boy um yeah. Beautiful. Now, are those chapter books that you would read out loud to your child? So The Children of Noisy Village, that is a chapter book, but it's a little bit more episodic than others. I think similar to uh, Pippi Longstocking, you could read a chapter and just have that stand on its own and still understand what's going on. Uh-huh. I think those two books, um, or not two, so The Children of Noisy Village has several books, and then Pippi Longstocking, I think, has at least three. Mm-hmm. But for these two stories there are chapters that sort of connect but I think you can also just pick a chapter and read that mm-hmm. and yeah I think my, my son is a chapter book <laughs> yes that uh, one is yeah. a chapter book and you couldn't just you couldn't just start anywhere you, you do need to read that from beginning to end mm-hmm. what other what other books do you have I mean we could talk about books for like 24 hours I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> well I'd, I I'd like to put in a plug for classic fairy tales and I, I know Laura agrees with me on that, and, and it's something that she and I have discussed. I think they're always an excellent choice. Uh, and there are so many. There are, you know, you can get fairy tales from any country or culture in the world. Mm-hmm. And children will begin to notice, gosh, this is kind of like the other story that we read, you know, like there's mm-hmm. a Cinderella type story in almost every culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that must be a common human experience to feel left out of the family and to to try mm-hmm. to persevere against that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we can put some specific recommendations in the show notes. We can get sure. put that together and have those there. Do you have, um, oh, there was something else you were going to say. You said fairy tale. Well, I mean, I think maybe. Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead, Laura. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, with regard to the topic of fairy tales, I think a common objection is that they sometimes are rather violent. Yes, that they might not be appropriate for these early ages for the, these young children. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that a four or five year old experiences the kind of violence that is in fairy tales very differently from an adult, and all, especially if they've not been growing up on TV or in violent video games. What they visualize is what they're capable of visualizing. And if they aren't exposed to 
violence, they won't visualize the blood gushing out from someone. <laughs> so, right. for example, in the fairy tale of, um, in the German version, in one of the older German versions of the Cinderella story, uh, the two evil stepsisters, they each chop off their heels and their toes so that they will fit into the golden slipper. But I think a four or five-year-old who hears that, it's not described in graphic detail, first of all. It's just mentioned that they do that so that they will fit into that shoe and then can go with the prince. So this child won't imagine the blood gushing out from their feet. They won't imagine right. the long-lasting consequences of the self-mutilation, right? They will just think about how these two very selfish girls are doing harm to themselves in order to get something that wasn't theirs, that they shouldn't have. So that's an important message for mm -hmm. them to hear and, and to, to reflect about without, right. it, it doesn't really matter, right, in the sense what, what, what happened to these girls. It's this idea that they were doing something very foolish in order to get something that wasn't theirs to begin with. Right. right. I think even if there is some violence in fairy tales now and then, they are not by nature violent stories. Mm -hmm. And they, they do not glorify violence and they right. often do not describe it in any detail at all. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think that I really have any concerns about that. Well, it reminds me of when I had Benjamin and Eden Lida on my show for talking about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And he said, children don't struggle with Shakespeare either because the same reason. He said, they already know dragons exist. Mm -hmm. They already know there's evil in the world. They already know that. So... There's no reason to try to shelter them from it, if you will. Right. And I, I, there's a definite element of sheltering and protection. I'm not saying never to, you know, but wouldn't it be better to read fairy tales to your children than to let them watch movies? <laughs> and, so much better. <laughs> there are people right. who are kind of. Or even doing... Saturday morning cartoons, which are relatively violent. I mean, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's true. So a third thing that I would speak to for little children is poetry. Mm -hmm. um, children love poetry and there's so much good poetry for children. I mean, classic nursery rhymes are obviously one choice. Um, children's poets like Jack Berlutsky or <laughs> Shel Silverstein or, you know, there's so many out there. Robert Louis Stevenson has a number of beautiful mm -hmm. poems that little children could even memorize mm -hmm. and they love to memorize uh, so I would encourage you to include some of those good things too. And I'm going to make a plug for George MacDonald. There you go. <laughs> the Princess I, and the Goblin. The Princess <laughs> and the Goblin is one of my absolute most favorite books. I also love The Wise Woman. Uh, these are great to read aloud to children. I am a huge fan of uh, the audio book that's free online on LibriVox. And we'll put this in the show notes. The Andy Minter version two of Princess and the Goblin should not be missed. It is so well done. It's such a good audio book. Um, the Wise Woman is also called The Lost Princess. Um, there's a picture book, book form of it that's very beautiful. Um, but that book, I would say, is really great to read aloud to a child that's anywhere between the age of seven and 11 or 12. Um, I read it out loud to my girls a few times. It's a beautiful story. Um, and not all of George MacDonald's stories should be read to children, but Undyne is another one. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correctly. It's an old French fairy tale. It wasn't actually written by George MacDonald, but it was one of his favorite fairy tales. He said it was the best fairy tale ever. <laughs> and I'm and, glad that you bring up audiobooks because I think that's really, that is so good to get children started on that early because that, again, this idea of visualizing what you hear, that will help them so much more than sitting them down in front of the TV and putting, even if it is a story, even if it is maybe mm -hmm. a, a version of a picture book that's on screen, mm -hmm. that takes away their ability to, to sure. create those visual images themselves. And, so and Winnie audiobook. the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, there's, there's a really good um, audio book mm -hmm. of Winnie the Pooh, and there's an audio drama that I believe... Um, Maybe Judy Dench is in it. I think a few British. <laughs> it's a really well done audio drama, um, audio book. And uh, my grandchildren love listening to the audio book Winnie the Pooh in the car. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they were doing this one. They were yeah. three and one and they loved it. <laughs> we used to listen to Rabbit Ears Radio in the car, which uh, is a series of short stories for children told by great actors and actresses with full orchestration written for the performance. 
you can still get them in bookstores with a little CD or whatever, but they're all about 20 minutes. So you're driving to school, coming home from the doctors, whatever, you could put one in. We're all going to listen to a story together and visualize it. And nobody's on their phone and nobody's on their iPad. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we're experiencing it together. I wonder if any rabbit ear radio uh, episodes are on YouTube even maybe. Uh, They might be, but I would hope that they don't have video. I hope that it's just audio. Right. (laughs) Any, any other books? I I mean, we could list a whole bunch, but any other? Anything by Barbara Cooney or Tommy DePaola or Mm, Delaire or William Stieg. I mean, there's a bunch. Yeah. (laughs) Beatrix Potter, you mentioned already. Yeah. Um, The Oz books by Frank Baum. I went through those in a streak when I was about nine. I read every single one of them and there's quite a few. Mm -hmm. There's more than one story about Oz. (laughs) And then how about the original, like the original Bambi, not the Disney version? Yes. Beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. story. The original mm-hmm. Mary Poppins, they're mm-hmm. all excellent. Little House on the Prairie, Stuart Little. I mean, there's just a whole bunch. Yeah. We'll make a list for your yep. <laughs> for your notes. <laughs> all right. And so what about middle school? What, what are we reading out loud as a family for middle schoolers to help them fall in love with good literature? So I think maybe first we need to really emphasize that we want to come can continue to read aloud, right? Um, I mean, we've yes. said that already, but, but yeah. maybe just emphasizing that once children start reading on their own, even if they're avid readers, keep reading to them. That is so important. And you can read different things than what they like to read. Um, my boys right now, middle schoolers, are really into the uh, Percy Jackson series and the Rangers Apprentice series. Um, oh, both great. Devour one after the other. So I read to them books that are a little bit more slow, books that they still like, but that they wouldn't pick over Percy Jackson or Ranger's Apprentice. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm, we've just finished uh, Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes stories, which are, of course, very exciting and interesting, but they also have longer sentences or more um, descriptive parts. So they take more patience. And I think when they read, they just really like to race through a book, which might not always be the best thing to do. But when they read on their own, I'm not going to interfere with how they read and what they read, as long as it is something that I I think is appropriate and and good. So I pick something that they wouldn't read on their own. Mm -hmm. Hmm? Another good read aloud option for middle schoolers is short stories. Mm. Um, In particular, uh, short stories that uh, they might not stumble across on their own. Uh, Mark Twain has some excellent short stories, mm-hmm. The Ransom of Red Chief. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I read aloud to some of my student, my uh, children when they were growing up, Oh Henry stories. I was just going to say, Oh Henry. Often how, very, very have a nice little twist to them. How and, to Rob a Train. Yes. <laughs> uh, just some some classic short stories. And they're, sh- they're short. So you're not taking up the child's whole evening, but you're connecting with them on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and often those short stories can lead into some wonderful conversations. Uh, I still remember reading the, I think it's a Dumont Passant story about the necklace where mm-hmm. the woman borrows a necklace for a ball right. and loses it and then spends like $40,000 replacing it and spends the next 10 years paying off that $40,000 by taking in laundry and scrubbing her fingers raw. Mm-hmm. Finally bumps into the friend that she borrowed the necklace from and I won't ruin the ending, but uh, my children talked about that story for years and years. Yeah. But, uh-huh. I mean, it made a huge impression on them. Right. So short stories is, is a great option to read aloud yes. with, with that age group. Um, one of the things I loved about teaching middle school and middle school students is that they are beginning to tackle more adult conversations and more adult situations. And so you can read stories that have, you know, betrayal or, or loss or war, or mm-hmm. poverty or something like that with them and have still a really good conversation without them having to actually go through those things in their real life. Um, And they do still love, you know, great adventure stories as well. So they'd love to be, you know, have the Hobbit read aloud to them or or Holes, Lewis Sacker's Holes. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much better. The movie isn't bad, but it's still a movie, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Madeline Langle is a great example of these, The Wind in the Door and The Wrinkle in Time. Oh, that's Um, good. Yeah. Where the red fern grows. I mean, there's there's great sorrow in that story, but it's a beautiful, beautiful tale. Mm-hmm. Watership down. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm yes. about? Yes. Story yes. about authority and war, and I mean, it's, but it's it's a great read aloud for that age group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you also bring up 
um, stories that have maybe topics that are a little bit problematic or a little bit um, that have characters that aren't always perfect or where, where difficult things happen. I think that's a really good point that um, children expand their range of experiences through these characters. Um, maybe uh, one more recommendation would be The Never Ending Story by um, oh, yes. Enders, the German name. It's been so ruined by the horrible movie that was made from it. So please don't look it up. <laughs> it, it is so bad. It is so awful. But the story is really good and and and, and beautiful. And it it has a protagonist who who changes in a negative way throughout the story. And he, he does change back. Um, but I think that development, the the way he becomes corrupted, is so so very interesting and important for middle schoolers to, to experience vicariously and right. to, to think about who do I want to be? What do I want to be like? Which mm. decisions were um, responsible for his his change um, to become a negative character? So I think that something like that can be really good to, to experience. Yeah. Yeah. And what about Pinocchio, Laura? I know you're, you're a supporter of Pinocchio being read in middle <laughs> school. Tell us about that. Well, um, really any age, not just middle school. I think Pinocchio is great to read with little kids on a different level than you might read it with middle school or older children. Um, it is, I think, a wonderful story about, not about lying, but about um, making wise choices, about making choices that are prudent or not so prudent. Most of the, throughout the story, he really makes mostly choices that are imprudent. But children learn from that they experience those choices with them and they even young children are able to then step above him and and talk about why that was a poor choice or why he sh what he should have been doing differently so again this is this encourages them to reflect about choices to reflect about interacting with other people to reflect about what what is a prudent choice and what is not and his story is one about learning prudence so i think it's a really important book to read with any age. Mm -hmm. And of course, with older students, you could even go more into things like, um, it is also a story about redemption. It is really a very Christian story. Um, but that would be something that you could discuss more with middle schoolers about how he is being um, redeemed and how he is, um, how uh, the, the Christian elements in it. At the end, when he transforms into a boy, of course, the whole point is his transformation, right? The idea of transformation. And at the end, his transformation is, in fact, described in very religious terms. So I think it is definitely meant as a religious transformation, becoming human, becoming a full human being. And all mm. of the bad things that happened to him, which there are a lot, he is like almost, he's eaten alive, he burns off his feet. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of violence, just like in a lot of fairy tales. But mm. first of all, I think kids understand that it is a puppet that this happens to. He is not a human being. And his goal is to become human and to, um, to to develop his humanity, and that's sometimes painful. It's sometimes <laughs> difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. What about high school? Okay. Um, high schoolers again can tackle even more adult subjects, um, and I think that one of the one of the things that we do to high schoolers that's not really fair is make them only read. Uh, nonfiction. Mm. The, you know, we're, we're going to read these philosophy texts and these government texts and these scientific treatises, and those are all important things, but they still need fiction. We all need fiction. So I would argue that continued exposure to great stories is still important and maybe even more important to high schoolers because that's when they really begin to form and choose their identity, their friendship groups, their future, you know, paths mm -hmm. in life, all that sort of thing. And there is some some wonderful fiction that high schoolers can handle, um, and probably fiction that maybe not all the parents out there have read yet, mm -hmm. <laughs> either. If their schooling was not great, um, you know things things like Paradise Lost uh, mm -hmm. by Milton, something that you can read with them, read aloud to them, and discuss. Um, Dickens, uh, I'm a personal fan of The Tale of mm -hmm. Two Cities, as I think his greatest work. We can argue about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, um, you know, stories about heroes, uh, heroic men and women throughout history. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all important to, to share with your high schooler. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe we can also connect that back to what we were talking about last time about not always having them annotate, not always having to make a plot chart for these books, but to simply talk about them as the story and to talk about the characters. How do they develop? What decisions do they make? How do they interact with each other? Emphasizing the conversation rather than the reading strategies. Right. right. And in, in most cases, just read it. Just read right. it and let's talk about it. Let's just read it. Yes. I had my I had my daughters read Anna Karenina when when they were eleventh and twelfth grade. Um, I just felt like it was a really important book for them to read as a as a woman. Um mm -hmm. and I'm really glad I had them read it. I I I need to read it again. I think it's one of those books that you read more than once at different phases exactly. of your life. <laughs> sure, sure. And it's a difficult book, but I think that that could be you know, I almost wish I would have read it out loud to them because mm -hmm. I think that we could have had some really rich discussions had I had I read that out loud to the girls. Well, and one thing that we really liked to do with our teens when they got to that age, they didn't so much like to be read aloud to, but they would sit next to us and work on a jigsaw puzzle or a craft project with an audiobook in the background. Well, that's a good idea. Um, and so we would do it, you know, episodically, not every single night, but as we could, we would listen to the story together. And the agreement was that we wouldn't go forward without the other one. Mm -hmm. And my husband might be listening to one book with our two older sons, and I might be listening to a third book with our younger son or whatever. It didn't matter, but we did them together. Um, and that was really a good thing. I remember reading Rob Roy, uh, with my middle son. And to this day, he's, he's, he loves that story and he's super excited that his middle name or that his name is Robert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think those family, family rituals are so important. I think that's really what makes them love or not love a story is the way they encounter the story. If it is um, in an ice cold dissecting kind of environment or if it is an environment with love and where there's really genuine joy of reading and joy of sharing the stories. And I think that can happen in the classroom too. It just depends on how it is approached. Mm -hmm. And if you have a high schooler who's struggling to read the book that they've been assigned at school, get them the audiobook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. They're still having to do all the mental work of processing the language and doing the visualization, but it just takes away the step of the eyes having to um, translate the symbols on the page. We had mm -hmm. a daughter who was profoundly dyslexic, and she did almost all of her reading by audiobook. She still does, and she mm -hmm. probably reads as much as I do, and even though she has a great difficulty reading because it's okay to do it by audience. So she does. That's awesome. And that's okay. That's great. Well, this was amazing. Do you guys have anything, any other thoughts you want to share before we close with our last question? Okay. The last question we ask uh, has to do with a book or a quote that had an impact on you. Um, so Robin, which question would you like to answer? What is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you or what book do you wish you had read sooner in your life? Mm, okay. Uh, the quotes I could go on for days and days, <laughs> but I think I'll do the second one. Um, I postponed reading Les Miserables by Victor Hugo uh, until I was in my late 30s. I avoided it in high school by choosing other books and I avoided it in college, even though we read epic literature. Um, it just didn't appeal to me because the name of it is The Miserable Ones. And I didn't <laughs> want to read a book about miserable people, uh, especially one that's 987 pages. <laughs> but when I finally did sit down and read it uh, on the advice of my spiritual director, I was absolutely blown away. Uh, mm -hmm. It is the most lyrical piece of fiction and the characters are so beautiful. And there's so much redemption in it. And to this day, the bishop in that book is my role model. Mm. Um, I want to be just like him in my Christianity and in my generosity and in my forgiveness of others. It made a huge impact on me. And I wish I had read it when I was 16 mm -hmm. and not 36. You might have read it differently, though. <laughs> it might I might have, but it might have helped me in my path a little bit, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, well, Laura. since we were talking about children's literature, um, I hope you'll forgive me for bringing up a children's book again. <laughs> so the book that I've read and reread throughout my childhood is, again, by Astrid Lindgren, my favorite author. It's called Ronya, the Robber's Daughter. And I think growing up, I read that 
oh, a lot, <laughs> many, many times. And I've also enjoyed rereading it with my children. Um, what I love about Esther Lincoln in general is that her characters are so lovable. All of her characters are quirky and funny and sweet. They've all become my childhood friends and they are so relatable. They are really, they're really very good and sweet people. They're often a little naughty, just like other kids too, but they are really always wonderful people. And um, Rania in particular, I like, um, so it is a story of a coming of age about um, friendship, about family, uh, independence, but also adventure. So I think it has something for everyone in the family. If you, as a family, read a lot, I think it would be really great. It's set in a kind of a medieval Robin Hood forest, but it's also inhabited by fairy tales, mythological creatures. So it's kind of a, a really interesting world that it's set in. And um, it's the, the friendship between the boy and the girl in the story is so pure and sweet and innocent. It's as an adult, you can definitely see that there's a developing love interest, but it's not a romance. It's just a beautiful, pure friendship with its ups and downs, but downs, but it's just a really beautiful story about friendship and coming to terms with conflict and um, what, and what was it called? A lot of, uh, Rania, the robber's daughter. Okay. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen it and it it looks really good, and the illustrations are really pretty. I remember yeah, the cover. Yeah, they're, they're lovely. They are. The cover of the book is real pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this was so fun. Thank you, ladies, so much for uh, having coming on two episodes. This was a long interview, basically, with both <laughs> with both the episodes. I appreciate your time, and I know this is going to bless a lot of people. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Adrian, and, and thank you all for listening. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>